coming out of the days of the Reformation, a, a slogan emerged, Semper Reformanda. Semper Reformanda. Have you heard that phrase before? It means always reforming. Always reforming. Semper Reformanda did not mean that we will continue to change our doctrine over time, as some have twisted that phrase today. But Semper Reformanda means to continually be reformed by the Word of God, that we need to constantly go back to the Word to be reformed by it and to obey it. And not only do we see in the history of uh, God's people in the Old Testament, uh, going all the way back to the garden, for that matter, but also throughout church history, there were continually times when even the people of God abandoned the Word of God, that the Word of God was covered up and ignored or replaced and substituted by the doctrines of men. The Pharisees did it in Jesus' day. Uh, So many of the kings did it before. Uh, As well as in church history, we see, for example, the Roman Catholic Church where they said the words of the popes are inspired. They are canon. They are just as authoritative as the Word of God, as the Scriptures. And they believe that The Apostle Peter was speaking through the mouths of the popes when they gave official edicts. And so a whole canon of man-made doctrine was placed over the church and covered the church. There are times in church history where parents could be killed and were killed for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in their own language, in their own tongue. These things happen in, under the guise of the church and under the guise of so-called Christian leadership. And today, so much of what is passing for preaching is not preaching at all. It's man-made, man-centered sermons. And the Word of God is put on the shelf because it is not deemed relevant for people today, or at other times people take scissors to the Word of God and cut out the parts they don't think are authentic, or Jesus wouldn't have said that. People have literally taken scissors and done that. Thomas Jefferson, for example, one of the the early U.S. presidents did that. Others take metaphorical scissors and just skip over the hard parts of the text because they fear Persecution from the culture. Maybe they fear imprisonment. Or maybe they are just man-pleasers. And they know if I say this, the people aren't going to want to hear it. I heard R.C. Sproul uh, once joke that uh, the reason that we need to come and preach as preachers every passage of Scripture is we come to those places where we go, oh boy, here's a church emptier. There are hard texts in Scripture, but we need it. Just as we often need medicine, sometimes we need chemotherapy. And that's painful and it's hard, but we need it to to live. 
So semper reformanda is something that we need to continue to herald today. We need to constantly go back to the word. If the word of God is like a, a, a pole, we are constantly wanting to be swung away from it by our sin. Our sin creates, as it were, a centrifugal force that pushes us away. Is that the right uh, right expression, it's, it's, it's throwing us out. I get centrifugal and centripetal confused, so you can correct me afterwards if I said that wrong. But we're constantly wanting to stray from the center pole, which is the word of God, and we need to be reformed by it. As we come to Ezra and Nehemiah today, which is one book, in our, in our Bibles it's, it's uh, noted as two separate books, but it's actually one book that's just been divided into two. So that's why we're covering Ezra and Nehemiah today, because it's one cohesive whole. As we come to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, we see this principle of semper reformanda as well, that God's people continually and repeatedly need reformation. And we're going to see cycles of sin and cycles of reformation in this book today. If you turn to page 7 of your worship folder, you can find an overview of this series. An overview of this series, and we'll look at that uh, together. The melodic line is, is uh, I've written as follows. The book of Ezra Nehemiah is a call to spiritual reformation. Rebuilding the city of David is not enough. God's people must also live according to God's ways. The book casts the theme of reformation in several ways. First, the Lord uses civil leaders to bless his people and curb evil. Second, the need for reformation is constant as the people continue to fall back into old sins. Third, the ministry of God's word is the principal means of reform. While the glory of Israel was restored for a season, Jerusalem's temple was rebuilt and the walls repaired, the greater and constant need of God's people is to be built up by the ministry of God's word. We are ever in need of reformation. As we turn to the New Testament, we discover this greater truth. God uses the ministry of his gospel preachers to save, strengthen, and reform his church. Until Christ returns, and ushers us into the eternal city. The church will be in continual need of reformation, not a reform to new ideas, but a reform that calls us back to the ancient and authentic ways, to the word of God. So that is what we're going to unpack this morning. As far as the literary structure of Ezra and Nehemiah, it's broken into three main sections, structured around three prominent leaders, so Zerubbabel, who's going to be a governor, he's an heir of David. And then Ezra, who's a scribe and priest. And then Nehemiah, who will become a governor in Ezra's day as well. So the, the book is divided by these kind of three guys. The days is Zerubbabel, then Ezra, and then Nehemiah. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah will also will find their contemporaries with each other. So they're living at the same time time. 
One thing I want to point out in the literary outline before we get into the bulk of the message is that in each of these sections, a king is going to send a leader back to Jerusalem to fulfill God's purposes. So a pagan king like Cyrus or Artaxerxes. And then there's going to be some kind of minister of the word that's going to need to build up and encourage the people to do what they're supposed to be doing. And we see this in all three sections. In the first section, it's the prophets along with Zerubbabel. In the second section, it's going to be Ezra. And in the third section, it's going to be Ezra and the the Levites proclaiming and reading the word of, of God. So we see that kind of back and forth parallel along the way. And that's one of the things that, as a, for, for example, myself as a preacher, when I'm looking at a whole book, and you can do this too, when you study a whole book of Scripture, try to figure out what is, what is the structure of this book and how does that help us see what the big themes are of the, of the, of the message. And that will help you to read and to understand more uh, with greater discernment and understanding along the way. And I've provided these, as you know, uh, in this series as we're doing these overview messages for your benefit as well. So I'd encourage you, you can use this in your own study too. So let's dive into the the book uh, of Ezra and Nehemiah together. First, I want to show you three things this morning. And the first is that the Lord uses civil leaders to bless his people and curb evil. The Lord uses civil leaders to bless his people and curb evil. That's our first point. Ezra begins with the proclamation of Cyrus. And we got, we got this already at the end of Chronicles, if you recall from our message two weeks ago. At the end of Chronicles, we read about the proclamation of King Cyrus, who's going to send God's people, after 70 years of exile, back to Jerusalem. And Ezra begins with this. And I just want you to think about this for a moment before... I read it. Let's say we are here in Norway in exile. Okay, I know for some of you, Norway is your home, but we're we're here in exile. And let's just pick let's pick a, a a country. Let's say I'm looking around at my church family, Indonesia. Let's say let's say Indonesia is uh, where God is calling His people to be. And of course, this is Israel. But I'm just using an, an illustration here. And we've been in exile for 70 years because of our sins. But all of a sudden, the king of Norway, who happens to be the king of this whole like hemisphere right now, okay, declares that all of you exiles from Indonesia go back because the Lord has called me to build him a temple there, to rebuild the temple. Okay? Just imagine, but you can think of wherever your home is, and I hope you don't feel like you're in exile. Norway's a wonderful place to live, so I hope you don't feel like you're in exile. But just imagine you've been banished from your land, which happens to be God's land, God's place, and all of a sudden he lets you go back. But it's not like a, a, it's not like a pastor rose up and um, proclaims civil disobedience. The, the pagan, unbelieving ruler or dictator 
says, go back, because the Lord has called me. And that's what happened to the Israelites. We read in Ezra 1, 1 to 4, and I encourage you to just kind of have your Bibles open. We'll thumb to some different passages along the way. But Ezra 1, we read, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has made me all the kingdoms of the earth, or has, sorry, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So again, think about this. We, if we were the Israelites, we, our forefathers were wiped out by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians in the most brutal of ways. We saw the temple destroyed, the city and the walls torn down. We saw the gold that was, that was David's and Solomon's for the temple taken away. All of our glory and honor, everything we believed in was destroyed before the eyes of our forefathers. Not that long ago, just 70 years prior. And then in the midst of our exile, another king rises up and destroys the Babylonians. So could you imagine being in exile in a city and all of a sudden watching the guy who who uh, who, uh, enslaved you come and another person comes and wipes them out? It's like one fish eating another fish eating another fish. Where's God in all of this? But God's words as he preached to Jeremiah and gave to Jeremiah that after 70 years he would return him to the land was made good when the Lord stirred up Cyrus. The Lord used this pagan unbelieving king for his purposes. As the text says, the Lord stirred up Cyrus. Now we should not take from this text that Cyrus was a, uh, became a Jew or converted. In, in the, the ancient Near East, they believed in local deities. So the king of Persia is looking over all of his lands that he has conquered and said, okay, who's the deity in this in this territory? Who's the deity in that territory? And he wants to make sure he appeases the gods so he can keep his reign going. So he wants to make sure the local worship of every place is happening. Okay, so, so Cyrus is, is no convert, but the Lord uses Cyrus's own purposes for his own greater purposes of restoring worship in Judea. And not only did Cyrus call the people to go and let them go, but he also, as you you may have heard in that text, he said, may you be assisted by the men of this place with silver and gold with goods and beasts. 
besides freewill offerings for the house of God is in Jerusalem. So not only did Cyrus give the exiles permission to worship God, he also gave them the means to worship God, the means to rebuild the house. He used the tax money of the land to rebuild the temple. We see the same thing happen in the days of Darius, who comes after Cyrus in Ezra 6. Here again, the Lord uses civil leaders to bless his people and curb evil. So King Darius, another pagan king, is now reigning over Persia. And during this time when Darius first came to the throne, the work on the temple of God stopped because people in the land oppressed the Israelites and made them afraid and crushed their work efforts. So they completely stopped building the temple. And in Ezra, in this section, we're given a hundred years of oppression. So we're given oppression during the days of Darius. And then actually the, the writer of, of the book actually shoots forward to other kings and then comes back to Darius. So if you're ever confused by the history in that text, it's because he is kind of shooting you forward and then bringing you back to Darius um, in, uh, in chapter 6. But then chapter 5 and chapter 6. But then we're, the letter is written to Darius. And Darius responds. He, he actually does a search of the, of the records of Cyrus. Well, what did Cyrus before me say about this temple being built? And he reads and discovers that Cyrus had given his blessing. So here the Lord uses Darius to, uh, Darius to bless his people and curb evil. We read in chapter 6, verses 6 and following, where uh, I won't read all of it, but Darius says in his letter back to the, the pagan governor who's trying to stop the work. He says, let the work on this house of God alone. He says, let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. He goes on to say the cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from, again, the tax money, from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And not only does he command them to give what's needed, he also curbs evil and protects God's people. This pagan king Darius says, Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it. And his house shall be made a dunghill. So don't mess with my edict. This pagan king Darius says, so the Lord, again, uses a pagan king to bless his people, to give the supplies for what God has called them to do in the worship of Yahweh and in rebuilding the temple. But he also curbs evil by saying, if any of you mess with them, a beam's going to be pulled out of your house and you're going to be impaled on it. Again, we get a hint at the brutality of these emperors. The brutality. You know, we think of hanging, we think of a noose. When you read about hanging in the Old Testament, it's 
they put a sharp pole into the ground and then they stick you on it. And the executioner's ultimate goal was to see how long they could keep you alive on that pole so that you would die as slowly as possible. So you would be skewered on that pole. This is what's going on. This is what God's people are experiencing, this kind of brutality. But under that kind of brutality, just imagine the, the, the beam of hope of, of one of those guys saying, if any of you mess with God's people, this will happen to you. It's pretty amazing. And the Lord is using these pagan kings for his own purposes. As we move forward into the reign of King Artaxerxes, in chapter 7, the king, again, the pagan king, sends Ezra, who is a scribe and a priest of the law of God, back to Jerusalem to make sure that the law of God is being taught and observed. Again, Artaxerxes is probably thinking, I want to keep that local deity happy so that my whole land will be blessed and I appease the gods. But the Lord used, again, for a third time, a pagan king in this book to bless God's people. And he says, not only should you teach, but you should also appoint judges and magistrates over all the people in the province beyond the river. And if they don't know my, they don't know God's law, you are to teach them. And again, more the Lord using a pagan king to curb evil. He says, whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. This is powerful protection. Lastly, I'll give you one final example for this first point. Artaxerxes, again, the same king with Ezra, because Ezra and Nehemiah are contemporaries of each other. In Nehemiah 2, verses 7 and 8, the king, Ar- the king sees Nehemiah sad. Nehemiah is a cupbearer, we're told in the text, of King Artaxerxes. So the Lord places people in all sorts of social uh, stratas to achieve his purposes in the world. And here the Lord raised up Nehemiah as a cupbearer who will later become the governor of Judea. And King Artaxerxes sees Nehemiah says, what, why are you sad? And Nehemiah shares with the king, I received a report that the city of God lies in ruins. Its walls are desolate. The people are bereft. And, he, and the king says, well, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, let me go, and would you give supplies for the work? And the king blesses Nehemiah. We, we read in verse 8, And the king granted me, as Nehemiah says, what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. And again, here's that emphasis that it is God who is the ultimate one using pagan kings to accomplish his purposes. And we'll get to Daniel later on in this series who says, God is the one who removes kings and sets up kings. It's God who is the one 
who is over kings to do his own purposes when he wills. And the Lord used these pagan kings, three mentioned by name, to bring about his good purposes. The good hand of God was upon Nehemiah, and therefore Artaxerxes was moved by God to let him go and do his work and supply all that was needed. You know, when I, uh, when I look around at uh, churches here in uh, this country, Norway's filled with many beautiful, beautiful churches, um, which also gives the false notion that Norway is still a very Christian nation, um, I think. And as many of you, my Norwegian colleagues, have shared uh, that with me uh, as well. But you look at, say, like the Stavanger Domkirke here, or some of the other beautiful churches in, in our area or, or in the various regions of the, of the country. You know, those weren't built by the people that went to church, you know, giving tithes and offerings. Those were built by tax money. These, these grand church buildings we see were built by the royal revenue. And in the days when the Lord was using and reforming Norway into a Christian nation. And yeah, we can see through that history a lot of uh, questionable acts and ulterior motives. But nevertheless, the Lord was using pagan kings in this country too to allow the gospel to spread. But the Lord used civil leaders to do that. It's pretty re- remarkable. Now, I, uh, we've actually been looking for a, a church building to meet in, and churches won't, they won't rent to us because <laughs> we're, not, we're not their church. We're not Denorska Churka, for example, or whatever else it is. But in these periods of Reformation, not just in Norway, but in England and other places, so often it was the civil magistrate, whether they were Christian or not, that encouraged the building of uh, churches and the promotion of religion in the land. So we see in this theme of reformation, firstly, as we've seen, the Lord uses civil leaders to bless his people and curb evil. And that would be a good thing for us to pray today, that the Lord would give us blessing um, with the civil magistrate. Paul, in fact, in the New Testament, tells the church to pray for your leaders, the civil leaders, that we might live quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. We should pray for those in high uh, positions of authority that we might have favor. Secondly, we see in Ezra and Nehemiah the need for reformation is constant. The need for reformation is constant. We have this principle of building in Ezra and Nehemiah that is on one sense literal. Like they're literally building a temple. They're literally building a wall around Jerusalem. But there's a spiritual aspect that's more important because in each of these phases of the book, 
Someone needs to proclaim the word of God and confront the evil that's going on with God's people. In the first case, it will be Ezra who discovers the problem of intermarriage. We read in in Ezra 9, after these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wise for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. This, if you've followed along in this series, should be raising major alarm bells as you hear it. Because what was the reason that the kingdom was divided in the first place? And the chief reason the Israelites got kicked out of the land? It was intermarriage. Remember Solomon with his 700 wives and 300 concubines? The text says, Now Solomon loved foreign women. And God's people were expressly forbidden from marrying foreign women because they brought their foreign worship with them and turned the hearts of God's people to paganism. And even Solomon, the wisest of all, did not have the wisdom to obey God's commandment. And these foreign women led him astray. And as a result, the kingdom in his, the day of his son, Rehoboam, was divided. And every abomination of the nations was practiced in the days of the kings thereafter till they were kicked out of the land except for a few periods of reform with a few of the kings. And Ezra comes back. Okay, They know what it's like to get kicked out of the land. It literally happened to them. And they've been living under brutal dictators for decades, for 70 years. And he comes back, and what happens? He discovers that the religious men, the pastors, the clergy, are marrying pagans. The people as well, the people, the priests, the Levites, and the officials being chief among all of them. And they are practicing again the very abominations that they were kicked out for. Do you see this cycle? Reformation is, the need for it is constant. God's people keep going back like a dog that eats its vomit. They keep going back again and again and again to their besetting sins. We see similarly in Nehemiah's day, the Ezra Nehemiah ends in chapter 13 with Nehemiah confronting four problems. 
One, in that chapter, we see religious perversion. So there's an Ammonite um, government official, a pagan, who made himself an apartment in the temple of Yahweh. So there are these storerooms where the supplies for Yahweh's worship were to be kept. And uh, one of the government officials uh, in Judah was related to this pagan because of the problem of intermarriage. And he cleared out one of those storehouses so his, his cuz could come and live in the temple. Nehemiah, who is a government, a civil leader, this would be another example of the Lord using civil leaders, this time a, a converted civil leader in Nehemiah, to kick him out. He, threw, he evicted him from the temple. So we see religious perversion continuing. Also, Nehemiah records in chapter 13 that he discovered the Levites were not receiving their living, so the offerings were not being brought to the temple so that the Levites could live. That was their means of living, was eating the food from the temple and the supplies from the temple. And so he had to deal with that. Thirdly, we also discovered that the Sabbath was being profaned. The Sabbath, profaning the Sabbath is a chief Sin is a chief sin among God's people. We see that emphasis in the law of Moses on keeping the Sabbath. And Nehemiah discovers that they're doing business. People are wheeling and dealing on the Sabbath. People are treading the wine press. So it's like the farmer in the field. You know, you go, you, it's the Lord's day. You sit out and you see the farmer. He's still out working, right? It's that kind of thing. Nehemiah discovered people treading the wine press. He discovered people bringing their goods into the city on the Sabbath and buying and selling. So Nehemiah literally had the doors blocked and locked on the Sabbath so that merchants couldn't come in. And then he also, again, the book ends, again, with a continuing problem of intermarriage. And Nehemiah discovers that it's still going on even after Ezra's reform. It's still happening. All of this illustrates that the need for reformation is constant. And you can imagine whoever were the first readers of this book. Surely we're reading it and looking around at the people of God in Judea and saying, we need reformation today. And we also looking around, I think we can all hardly say, yes, we need reformation today. I I look out and see so many of you, the, the stated reason for why you are in this church is because you wanted to hear the word of God preached. You know, you don't have to be around our church long to know that we are pretty boring and a pretty ordinary church. There's no fog machines, smoke lights. We don't have rock and roll bands. I used to actually lead those at one part, at one, one point in my life. We don't, we don't have the dog and pony show to win you in, to kind of to get you in and entertain you, you know? We don't follow the Nirvana song, Here We Are Now, Entertain Us. You, your stated reason for coming is because you're like, I just want to hear the word of God preached. And I want to hear the gospel. And I want my kids to hear the gospel and hear the word. You know? If I ever stop preaching the word or anyone from this pulpit 
You should revolt. Kick us out. Because the need for reformation is constant. And we need it today. And the only means of bringing about that reformation is what we see in our third point. That the ministry of God's word is the principal means of reform. The ministry of God's word is the principal means of reform. And I hinted at this as I uh, walked you through the brief literary outline before. But when each guy was sent back to Jerusalem, a reform was brought about. Not only were they building the temple or rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, but they were also confronting the sin with God's people. And the way they did that was with the word of God. In the first part of Ezra and Nehemiah, in Ezra 1 and following, when Zerubbabel goes back, they face fierce persecution, which brings the work on the temple to a halt because the people are afraid. And so what did God do? He raised up the prophets to encourage the people to return to the work. For example, in Ezra 5, we read, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So Zerubbabel, the governor, and Yeshua, the priest, were leading the people, but then the prophets rose up to support them, preaching the word of God. And we read in Ezra 6, 14, And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo, They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So God's people prospered through the ministry of the word by the prophets. And you know, a moment ago I said that we can be pretty boring or ordinary in what we do. I should, I, what, the, the, the way I mean that is from an outwardly perspective, someone who wants to be entertained, go find another church. It won't help you, but go find another church, okay? Um, but if you want to prosper, you need to be at a church that preaches the word of God, okay? It doesn't have to be this church, but be at a church that preaches the word of God, So if you want to be entertained, the worship of Yahweh and of our Lord Jesus Christ is not something that's going to be much for you. But if you want to prosper, heed the word of God and be at a place where the word is preached and prophesied. The early uh, Puritans actually called uh, exposing the word prophesying not in the sense that they were predicting the future, but that they were proclaiming the word of God. Now, the, the Lord did use the prophets at time to predict things in the future, but 
most of the time, when you read the minor prophets or the major prophets, for example, they're merely pointing God's people back to the law of Moses, that they are back to the word that they were to follow. And that is still the job of preachers today. In Ezra's day, he did the same thing. He set his heart to teach the statutes of the Lord and his rules in Israel. (coughs) We also read in Nehemiah's time that Ezra is still ministering during Nehemiah's reign as governor and how Ezra opened the book. We read that in Nehemiah 8 in our scripture reading this morning. God's people gathered on the seventh month to hear the word of the Lord. They demanded, they, they wanted to hear the book of the law. He opens it. They built a pulpit for it. We need, well, maybe someday we'll be in a proper building and there'll be a pulpit. You know, we think of these, our old, the Norwegian churches, these high elevated pulpits. They built this pulpit so that Ezra was above all the people to proclaim the word of God. And everyone, the text said, listened attentively and they shouted, Amen, Amen. But then they wept. They wept because they came under the conviction of the word of God. And yet in that day, Ezra restored them and encouraged them along with the Levites. And how did they encourage them? They helped them understand the word. They helped them understand. We, we, we read in chapter 8 about the Levites who would go around. They would read the text too, and then they would give people the sense of it. That's what preaching and teaching is. We're opening up the word of God and then reading it and teaching it and then giving the sense of what the text says. We need to understand it. And as they understood the text, they were actually strengthened with joy and they left rejoicing. They celebrated then the tabernacle, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, which had not been celebrated in the way that they had celebrated it since the days of Joshua, the text says. So this reform of the word brought about renewed commitment to the worship of the Lord. I want to tie this into the New Testament briefly and then close. I've already mentioned that the, the preachers today are the... Uh, the it, we have inherited the, the role of the prophets. Not that today we speak infallible words that we receive from the Lord, but we preach the word to you. We preach the word to you. And that's how reform happens in the church. We saw on the day of Pentecost, or we see in the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, Peter preached the word. He preached the gospel. And afterwards, we read in Acts 2, 37, now when The crowd heard this. They were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? It was the preaching that cut the hearts of the people. The preaching of the word. In Ephesians 4, we we learn that still today, that God has raised up pastors and teachers to teach the people, to shepherd them, and to equip them. Paul says in Ephesians 4.11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And over the course of redemptive history, God raised up apostles and prophets and evangelists. Um, most, uh, at least in the Reformed scholarly world, we would argue that those first three gifts have ceased. Those were extraordinary gifts before the giving of the of Scripture or the New Testament. But now today, the ordinary gifts are the shepherds and the teachers. The, pa- the word shepherd also means pastor and teachers that continue today in that office. And we see that carried forward, for example, when Paul addresses the Ephesian elders. He calls them elders, he calls them pastors, and he calls them overseers, all in the same sanction, that they have this function. Okay. We also see in Titus 1, for example, where... Paul tells Titus to finish his work by appointing elders in every place. And the principal role of the elder, we are told in Titus 1.9, is he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So that Levitical And the role of the scribes, of the Levites, of the prophets continues in the ministry of the elder in that they're supposed to know sound doctrine, hold fast to it, to teach it, and to rebuke those who contradict it. That's that's the main job. We read 2 Timothy 4, those famous words, preach the word, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, preach the word fulfill your ministry that is the main job of god's people to bring about reform and lastly one other new testament text that's relevant here second timothy 2 2 we see the perennial need to train more preachers to train more men for the task Paul writes to Timothy, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So in a brief overview fashion, we have looked at the book of Ezra and Nehemiah today, and we have seen three things. We've seen that the Lord uses civil leaders and rulers to bless and protect God's people. We've seen that the need for reformation is constant. And we have seen, thirdly, that the primary means of bringing about reformation is the ministry of the word. If we want semper reformanda to continue, that spirit of the reformation to continue in our day, we need to constantly be going back to the word when you're having conversations with each other you, and people are struggling or people are needing encouragement or people maybe are needing a, a soft rebuke, bring it back to the Word. Bring it back to the Word. That's how the Reformation begins. And what is the result of that Reformation, my friends, and what we want to experience so badly today? Is it not joy? Is it not joy? 
We want to experience the joy of the Lord and be strengthened by it. Maybe you came here weak today, feeling weak. You need strengthening. And the means of that is the word that produces joy. And so I'll close. And the words of Ezra and the Levites will be my words to you as we end this message. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Then we read, and the people went their way in chapter 8, rejoicing because they understood the words that were declared to them. I will do my best to help you understand the words that are declared. And my exhortation to you is do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. In the moment of darkness, you will find the joy of the Lord when you return to the word of God. May we all today and always be reformed by it. Let's pray.